0: Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Today we're going to talk about UNICEF, one of the leading international players in the world of education. Joining me to talk about her role within the organisation is Asma Maladwala, a specialist at UNICEF headquarters in New York, who leads on inclusive education. Prior to her current role, Asma was a programme specialist working cross-sectorally on inclusive programming in early childhood development education, health and data. Asma began her career as a teacher, working with children with and without disabilities in the USA and the UAE. She went on to work with the government of Dubai on education reform as the lead on inclusive early childhood development and education, and eventually founded Dubai's first inclusive early childhood centre. Asma Maladwala, welcome to Go4.
1: Thank you, Richard. I'm really happy to be here.
0: It's a pleasure. It's it's great to have you on and thank you for joining. Uh, Firstly, a uh, tricky question. What does inclusive education mean to you?
1: It means a lot, but I think if I had to sum it up in a word, I would say justice. Um, And to me, basically, that means dismantling rather than working around the existing systemic barriers um, that are the root causes of of inequity and exclusion. there's, a, there's a, a cartoon graphic that I'm thinking of that I think many of us are familiar, many of us in the field are familiar with a graphic that depicts the difference between equality and equity. And they're there like three people looking over a fence to watch a sporting event. And the equality one, each one of them has the same, has the exact same box, which gives them the same amount of leverage. But the difference is, One person is really tall and they're able to very easily watch the game. And another one is a child. And in spite of having that box to stand on, still cannot see the game. So, you know, equality, everybody gets the same thing. The equity graphic shows that the shortest person gets more boxes. The person who's tall and doesn't need the box doesn't get a box. um, And basically reflects the concept that with equity, everybody gets what they need. There's a, there's a more recent version of that graphic that has an additional update, I'll call it, which reflects justice. And in that image, there is no wall, there's no fence. Nobody needs a box because the fence is removed. The systemic barrier is removed. <laughs> I think that's a really powerful mental image. And to me, it really, really captures the idea of justice and what to me inclusive education represents. It's removing those barriers instead of trying to find boxes and individual accommodations and figuring out who needs what. Let's just get rid of the barriers.
0: No, absolutely. But that's a really nice image, and it's I haven't seen that, but I'll I'll find that online and put a link to it in the in the notes for the for the show so people can have a look. Yeah, and that is I guess, sounds like a perfect metaphor for it. So the boxes represent different accommodations based on people's needs in the classrooms, students' needs mm-hmm. in the classrooms. Getting rid of the whole fence is making a truly inclusive education system.
1: Exactly, exactly. Where every, every child is valued and respected and seen in all their diversity, um, where diversity is seen as a strength, not a weakness. Um, and where every child gets, you know, doesn't have to combat barriers to actually participate in learning. They actually have an environment that is welcoming and, and receptive and inclusive and, and sees them for who they are and meets them where they are rather than expecting them to adjust to often inflexible systems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And let's, um, let's talk about UNICEF's role in this. Uh, everyone listening will know about UNICEF, incredibly famous international organization. <laughs> um, they might not know so much about what goes on in particular regarding inclusion and inclusive education. Can you talk a little bit about the role that the organization plays in that respect?
1: Sure, um, so I think, well, our role is pretty multifaceted and, and it varies depending on the context that we're working in. So, you know, we have, we have offices in, in most countries where we, where we do work very closely with governments. We support them um, to achieve child rights, to fulfill and uphold child rights. And what we do specifically with regards to inclusive education is we adopt a system strengthening approach. Um, and this again will look different depending on the context, depending on whether we're talking about a country uh, country level work or headquarters level work, which is where I'm based for example. Um, but fundamentally when we talk about system strengthening, we're looking at addressing the supply side. So working on the education systems themselves, which includes you know, capacity development, supporting a, a teacher capacity development, Capacity development for educational administrators, um, looking at infrastructure, physical, but also learning-related, curricula, pedagogy, learning materials, uh, you know, everything that happens within the school. The other part of that is the demand side. So that is that is looking very much at ensuring that parents ha- are aware of their children's rights to, to receive a quality, inclusive education. That negative attitudes and stigma, which is often one of, the hardest but, and, and biggest barriers to overcome is being that we are doing everything we can to combat um, negative attitudes, stereotypes, uh, you know, perceptions, negative perceptions around people with disabilities, and also looking at the costs associated uh, with regards to disability that might serve as a barrier for families to, to, to enroll their children in education. Um, and then, of course, there's the quality aspect, which looks at the quality of the learning opportunity. You know, it's not just about access. I think we learned that lesson through the MDG era. Access is, is important, but we can't stop there. We have to also pay very close attention to what's what's happening. What is the quality of, of, of education that children are participating in? Are they learning? Are they, are they able to acquire the skills that are going to enable them to become lifelong learners, to become active citizens and contributors to their communities, to their societies. So a lot of our work focuses on this. This of course also includes what we call the enabling environment, which looks at the overarching environment. Is it conducive and does it facilitate inclusive education? So this includes, for example, the legislative frameworks, laws and policies. This includes data and evidence. This includes uh, um, financing you know, ensuring that we are we are supporting governments to adequately think about and, and take into account considerations for inclusive education systems and supporting leadership and management to really understand the value of inclusive education. And we do this across the board from early childhood education all the way, in fact, even earlier, <laughs> but within education specifically from early childhood education, all the way to tertiary and, and you know, readiness for the workforce. Um, so that's, that's sort of the overarching way that we work. Part of this includes, uh, you know, understanding what works in different contexts and highlighting that, supporting, supporting countries to learn from each other, um, using, t- taking lessons learned from different contexts to see how they can benefit others, um, advocating at global, national, regional, every level possible, Um, to bring attention to the issue uh, of inclusive education, um, harnessing partnerships because nobody works alone and nothing can be accomplished uh, alone. Um, And a couple of, I think, really important parts, uh, really important aspects of how we work is because UNICEF works across such a breadth of, of sectors from health to child protection, nutrition, et cetera, it gives us we have the benefit of being able to work cross-sectorally. You know, I think one of the important considerations is that education systems don't operate in a vacuum. They operate within a larger system. And so being able to work and approach inclusive systems strengthening at every level cross-sectorally is a really, really powerful um, and valuable and important way that we work. And then finally, the last part that I wanted to highlight is Again, reflecting the breadth of work that we do, it also allows us to adopt an intersectional approach where we're looking at children with disabilities who, are also, who also belong to other communities that might result in compounded discrimination. Um, for example, girls with disabilities or children, on, children with disabilities who are displaced or on the move, um, you know, children with disabilities from ethnic or linguistic minority communities and so on. Because we, we have been working across all of these, these areas for, for so long, we're able to really harness that experience and bring it together to adopt a more intersectional lens to our work on inclusive education. Um, so it's, I think that that's a really valuable uh, and powerful approach to, to do the work because we talk so much in our sector about silos and we're trying really hard to break those silos and actually recognize that progress doesn't happen in silos
0: it's really interesting you mentioned intersectionality because that is the norm really isn't it you it's very often to have to have a child with a disability that without any other barriers associated to that so they might be living in poverty you you mentioned gender as well Um, so it's absolutely the norm that these barriers intersect and i suppose that going back to the image of the figuring out what boxes to put under different people to see over the fence. That's what makes that so complicated, right? That's why it's so much better to change the whole education system, if possible, uh, rather than looking at each individual child, because each individual child, by definition, is individual. They have different barriers. Everyone's absolutely different. You have 30 kids in a class, 50 kids in a class. Every single one of them will be totally different, different families, different communities, different abilities, you name yep. it. Um,
1: and on so, paper, they may look very similar. Yes, yeah. But we're not two-dimensional <laughs> or one-dimensional yeah. as individuals.
0: No, exactly. I suppose it's important then to promote, to uh, approach this in, in different ways. I was reading one report by UNICEF that talks about the different arguments put forward for inclusive education. Mm-hmm. And you know it seems funny to say that because it, you kind of feel why do we need to argue for inclusive education, right? <laughs> it should be just something that we were able to do without putting together these complicated arguments to back it up. But, but given that they can help, um, it might be important to talk about them. And now this is known as the three-point argument. Um, so there's an education educational case for inclusion, whereas in it's, it benefits learners in a class, not just those that are marginalized, it benefits every learner in the class, which I think is important to clarify. Uh, the social case which the idea here is that you have more inclusive schools, uh, that leads to more inclusive societies, uh, people that are more accepting of difference generally. And we can see in the world today that that's a bit of an issue all around the world. And the economic case, Mm -hmm. where one argument is to to say, well, it's actually more expensive to set up special schools and specialised schooling environments compared to working at how we can design mainstream schools to include to include everybody. Right. Um, would you be able to elaborate on that?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think one one thing to consider is again the fact that there are these three arguments, let's let's remind ourselves that they the fundamental argument is the human rights one, right? We operate very much from the basis of equal rights for everyone. It doesn't matter regardless of disability race gender etc cetera, etc cetera. and that every everybody has the equal right to a quality education uh the equal right to 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 live up to their potential um but going back to the three-point argument that you mentioned i think so, you know a key a key consideration with the economic case anyway is yes there is absolutely the argument that and i mean it makes it makes logical sense, right, that it would be more cost effective to maintain one system of education for everyone, rather than have parallel systems that have similar resourcing needs and similar administrative and bureaucratic structures. It's it's just such a waste of resources to create two or three in some cases. Um, systems. But I think the other part of that also, and this actually, this overarching argument I think cuts across all three, the economic, the educational, and the social, is that from, from a, a national benefit perspective, there, is, there are long-term uh, um, uh, negative implications to segregated education or to depriving children of their right to quality education both on an individual level as well as on a national level. So there are studies that have shown in, in some low-income countries up to a potential 7% loss of GDP due to a lifetime of exclusion, which is pretty significant, particularly in lower income, co- I mean, for any, for any GDP, for any economy that's, that's huge, but in a low-income uh, a setting that is particularly uh, uh, impactful. But then the other thing is the relationship between disability and poverty right? SDG one, we're combating poverty, we're doing everything we can to, to advance a world that is more equitable, that is more just, that is more fair for everyone. And inclusive education, quality education for everyone is such a primary driver of that. Because when children are deprived of quality education, it hinders their ability to participate in the workforce, which has Uh, negative economic impacts again on the individual level because of poverty but also on the on the national level as I mentioned it also results in adults with disabilities who are more reliant on social welfare systems which is an additional economic burden to 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 governments so thinking about the long game and thinking about the long-term value to me as you said why are we even having to argue for this but we do right and depending on our audience and depending on who we're trying to to get buy-in from we often have to make some tweaks and we have to we have to present or highlight different aspects of the environment but it's it's such a fundamental to me anyway (laughs) it's such a fundamental component of a just and equal society of a fair society um that without quality education for everyone, how are we ever going to eradicate poverty? How are we ever going to address the the, the crises and the challenges that we're facing as a global community, whether it's climate-related, whether it's conflict-related, whether it's, you know, there, there are so many now public health-related. There's so many challenges that we're facing as a global community that really it's in our best interest to ensure that Globally, we're, we're doing everything we can to prepare the future generations to, to solve these problems that we've created for them. <laughs> you know, we've, we've made a mess and we need to equip our future generations to actually rescue all of us. <laughs> Sounds a bit <laughs> dramatic, but you know. <laughs> um, and think- if we don't give them those opportunities, how do we, how do we reverse the course of, of so much um, that needs to be reversed, really?
0: yeah and i think dramatic is fine when we're talking about this <laughs> i think dramatic is called more
1: um
0: i yeah i i wanted to say as well that you mentioned earlier that when we're talking about education system we do have to include uh healthcare social welfare everything it's all connected this wider system um awesome. and there's a very powerful feedback loop with education and poverty where as you said um if people are able to receive good education, they're more likely to go to school, get a good job, and so on. That feeds back into the wider economy. That also contributes to better healthcare systems, better social support, and so on and so on. So it's exactly. all so interlinked. You also use the phrase, um, we have to look at the long game. Now, do you yeah. think that's part of the problem? Because yep. when we're looking for... Uh, when we're, I'm, this isn't a problem, I'm going to say that's very easy to solve because we're not going to make children grow up faster. Because when we're, when we're looking at... Um, often when governments are looking at new initiatives, they want to see, well, to use the, the, the phrase, more bang for their buck, right? That mm-hmm. Especially in regard to electoral cycles, if you have a government that's in power for, for four or five years, you're, you're investing, if you like, into early childhood education. These kids aren't going to join the economy, in a air quotes, for another 15, 20 years. I think that's, is that one of the big issues here when we're looking at investment into the education system?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think, and you know, I'm not saying this based on any evidence that I can pull up right now, but I know it exists, that when we look at um, investments in education across the, the education spectrum, there's a, a, a significant proportion that's educated and in, that's invested in higher education, which is great, it's important, but are we investing, uh, you know, relatively? Um, are we are we giving the same amount of value and importance to the early years? And I think that's exactly what you what you just touched on, right? Is that we look at the most bang for our buck. We look at okay, well, our 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 economy or our industrial section is evolving into I don't know, pick something renewable energy for example. Well, let's invest in higher education to create more a stronger workforce for that sector but we're not actually thinking about what are we going to need in 20 years what are we going to need in in 30 years and so we're not investing at the foundations and this is you know this is part of the reason why we have this learning crisis where we're not seeing the we're not seeing the foundational learning that's that should be happening actually happen because the investments are not being made appropriately or if they are they're not necessarily being made effectively to strengthen that core. Um, And so it is a matter of the long game versus the quick wins or the low hanging fruits, which, you know, I I think it's human nature to think about where I can get that immediate results, immediate result or immediate gratification. But I think, you know, very much in line with the sustainable development agenda, we have to think about sustainability and it's it's concerning that, um, you know, we don't seem to be doing that adequately across multiple, not just in education, but certainly also in education. Um, and it is, it is alarming, it is concerning, and it's really, you know, I, I think we're all acutely aware of the fact that with regards to the climate crisis, for example, we're running out of time. And if we don't switch our thinking, <laughs> we're not going to, we will run out of time Um, and we really can't afford to do that. So it's, you know, yeah, it it really is about thinking sustainably and thinking long-term and thinking about what are the investments we need to ensure strong foundations so that we don't, we don't have crystal balls. We don't know what we're going to be confronted with in 20 years or 30 years, Um, but but if we invest, in the foundations, we know that we will we will have a population of citizens that are equipped to figure it out, to address, to solve, to resolve issues, to to you know, to problem solve and find solutions to the challenges that we are that we are now creating um, that will manifest in the future.
0: Absolutely. And you're doing more than your fair share in terms of uh investing into this particular challenge. I wanted to talk about you and your the fact that you've built a career around inclusion in education. What first took you down this route?
1: I think it probably won't surprise you um, or anyone listening who is in the sector to know that there's a personal connection. Um, I think I knew very early on that I wanted to work with children. I hadn't quite figured out in what capacity, but when I was, I think six, no, when I was about 12, um, my aunt and uncle had a baby girl who was born with Down syndrome. And as she grew up and I got to know her and I was very fortunate to, to go to university in a town that was very close to where they lived. And so I, I spent a lot of time with her when I was in my, you know, 17, 18, 19, and she just opened a whole new world for me. Uh, and so it's really that personal <laughs> That personal connection of of just seeing that oh wow there's there's so much more that we don't think about that you know children like her or 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 children who are often forgotten um, should be should be considered and and that we need to do for 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 that population um, and also it was a lot of fun
0: <laughs> it's
1: a lot <laughs> yeah. of fun working with with young children and actually seeing that you you're able to to impact them and and learn something from them and also see their growth and see their evolution and see that you're able to teach them something and yeah
0: <laughs> that's that short term game that that instant feedback if you like when you're working with children you can see the so look. quickly the effect that you're having right exactly yeah. i mean so often when i speak to people about this they have similar stories it's always a personal connection there's always something exactly. that's happened it's it's uh, it's it's funny that it it works out that way but now you have one of those enviable jobs where you work from people all over the world. you you travel all over the place, very exciting. You've seen a lot in the world of education. I wanted to talk about um, lessons you've learned have you Have you seen any real success success stories you'd like to share from the world of inclusive education?
1: Oh wow. Um,
0: you probably have a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know there I think you know, I think there have there are a lot a lot of lessons learned that I continue to learn um, and there are a lot of success stories but I think it's important to keep in mind that success looks different depending on where you are who you're asking but ultimately from my perspective I try to never lose sight of 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 the overarching goal children's right to inclusive education um, and I think in that regard, there have been lots of successes. And, and yeah, so just, just some examples, you know, across different components of the system, I think that that I would like to just quickly touch on is, for example, we talk a lot about teacher capacity, right? Um, about teachers not having the support or, or being equipped to, to, to support a diverse group of students in their classrooms. And for, for those in inclusive education, we're probably all also familiar with universal design for learning principles, which, which you know, we, we think are very, um, a very valuable and appropriate way of developing inclusive, flexible curricula, pedagogy, learning materials that really allow and respect diversity and allow children to engage and, and demonstrate their learning in ways that are appropriate for them. So in Ghana, for example, um, we've been working very closely with the Ministry of Education to to strengthen their teacher capacity, uh, to strengthen the the capacity of their teacher workforce, utilizing and implementing universal design for learning. And over the last, uh, I don't know, few years, um, there's been so much growth and so much progress with regards to integrating it within existing um, teacher training uh, uh, curricula so that future cohorts will have will be equipped um, integrating it with an ongoing continuing professional development program so that teachers will continue to receive the training and continue to receive uh, the skills required to implement a universally to implement universal design for learning within their classrooms um, and you know th- this started out as a pilot and it's it's now at a Place where they're actually rolling it out across thousands of schools across the country. And this comes down to that, to that commitment and that long-term vision on, on the part of the government, you know, really seeing that, yeah, this is something that is gonna have long-term dividends, it's going to pay off over time, but we have to start somewhere and we have to begin. Um, and one of the, the most beautiful parts of it is that amongst the lessons that they've learned. They've actually realized that a lot of the myths that they had around inclusive education are being dispelled. So, for example, you know, there's a there's a prevalent um, misconception that inclusive education is expensive to implement because learning materials have to be specially designed and have to be really high tech and all that. Well, they found teachers were able to implement universal design for learning based principles in their classrooms using low cost tools because they were working with what they have. They they had understood the principles so well that they were able to use to build on their own knowledge, to actually make accommodations and adaptations to their existing materials and learning, learning uh, materials to, to accommodate and include all learners. Um, and their attitudes changed. There's also this belief that you have to change mindsets before you can expect teachers to accommodate and include learners with disabilities. What we're seeing is that that's not always the order of things. Sometimes you, you give them the experience while giving them the support, and that might actually be a faster way of, of achieving your goal of changing the mindsets. Um, you know, we're all, we're all conditioned to fear what we don't know, and learning something theoretically will only take you so far. But when you actually are learning the theory and, being able, and, and able to implement it successfully, there's nothing more powerful than that. Um, So I think that's a really, uh, that's a really powerful example, um, you know, teacher capacity building, Uh, we have, you know, we have other examples around um, legislation and policy, for example, in Vietnam, Uh, we've been working with the Ministry of Education there to, to, and this actually adopts an inclusive education lens that's broader than just children with disabilities. It's been, uh, it's included children from other minority communities, ethnic and linguistic minority communities. LGBTQI plus children from the LGBTQI plus community, um, you know, and through the provision of mother tongue based bilingual, inclusive, child centered uh, learning, um, we actually worked with the government to strengthen and amend legal frameworks for stronger inclusion across these different groups. And so this is going to have long-term benefits for all, what is it, 21 million children in Vietnam. Uh, because over we we actually were able to cha- remove those structural systemic barriers through the policy and legislation arm. So you know, and there there are thousands of examples like this. And you know, naysayers will say, "Well, what you know are all children with disabilities now going to inclusive schools?" No, it takes time, but you have to start somewhere. These are the building blocks of an inclusive system and an inclusive society. And every win like this is is going to have long-term long-term uh, results. So again, it's all about the long game.
0: Well, each one is taking down one of those uh, one of those planks in the fence in the way the ball Absolutely. game, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I love the way you put that. Exactly.
0: Well, Asma, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been so interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Absolutely fascinating, and thank a pleasure you. to have it's you been on.
1: Such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much.
0: That was Asma Maladwala. My thanks to her for joining me today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4. If you did, then please share it around. You can also subscribe. Listen to a new episode every Wednesday. In the meantime, keep on chipping away at that fence. Everyone should be able to enjoy the game. Bye for now.